So we're continuing in this footnote to letter three, and we're winding down with this footnote. It was an important one, but we are winding down. So we're on page 41, and he's discussing further the idea of exactly why we needed this, the revelation at Sinai, what its purpose was, and what it was not. So we're in the second paragraph. Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch has been criticized for not adequately proving the truth of Judaism logically. In letter two, Naftali tells Benjamin that after studying the history and teachings of Judaism from within, it would be up to him whether or not to accept it. As I said last time, I think so far three people have reached out to me to say, why doesn't Rabbi Hirsch actually prove it logically? Why does it not seem to be a point of emphasis for him? Right? Three different people have reached out. Could be more people have had the same question. But over here, he's addressing it head on. I mean, Elias is addressing why it is that he does not seem to try to prove it logically. This criticism seems particularly valid since he stresses that Judaism does not demand belief. Right? This is an interesting topic of its own. Right? What, in other religions, dogma is very important. In Judaism, there never was, dogma was never an important thing. Until the Rambam came around in the uh, about 900 years ago, there was never a concept of like the principles of Jewish faith. When the Rambam came around, he did try to sort of systemize it as he did to many other things. But this was a new idea. So, however, the truth of Torah, according to Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Hirsch, does not require either logical proof or blind faith. It is rooted in the empirical, historical experience at Mount Sinai. So we're not trying to prove it logically, and we're not trying to establish anything that we can deduct from other things. We're just saying it is one thing and one thing only, only according to this. It is the empirical historical experience in my side. The revelation of the Torah written in oral in turn made certain that we would see our world, nature and history in the right perspective beyond the possibility of mistakes. We do not have to prove Torah, but to learn from it. Recent writings by a number of Balei Teshuva, right? Balei Teshuva means people who have returned towards an observant lifestyle, have described the profound role that incontrovertible evidence of a public revelation played in their own return to Judaism. So the first person who is quoting over here, Rabbi Uri Zohar, I don't know how many of you are familiar with him, but Rabbi Uri Zohar started off life very much decidedly not as a Rabbi Uri Zohar, but was rather maybe the, perhaps the most prominent actor and director in the Israeli film scene in the 50s, I want to say, actually, it's probably 60s and 70s. And then he actually became a religious Baal Teshuvah, and, um, and now he has a, a long beard and big peyot and, and a kippah. And he talks often, and I, I, I heard him speak, actually, one time came to the yeshiva that I was in when I was in elementary school, and he spoke about this idea. This idea about the, you know, the seminal moment in his return to an observant lifestyle was the idea of a national revelation that just blew him away. Dr. Akiva Katz, and then the search, Indeed, as Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Hirsch points out, the Torah goes to great lengths to establish the fact of a public, supernatural revelation beyond the possibility of a doubt. It emphasizes that the revelation took place in the presence of the entire people, unlike the birth of any other religion. So any other religion that is based on an idea that there was a divine revelation, you find something very interesting. If you would plot, you know, set up your graph and start plotting, how many people did God reveal himself to in any other religion that is basing itself on a divine revelation? What you will find is, one, 
occasionally two people God revealed himself to in the presence of two people. And that's it. Every other religion that is based on a divine revelation is based on one or max two. And then you're plotting and all of a sudden there's this outlier. And this outlier is not like a little bit off, it's exponentially off, right? And this has been something that forever and anon has been something that has been incredibly convincing to many people. This claim has been transmitted from generation to generation, has been firmly accepted by the Jewish people. Such a tradition inevitably must be based on an actual historical experience of the community as a whole. At no time could a demagogue seeking to perpetrate a fraud have convinced the Jewish people that its ancestors had received a public revelation of which it had never heard before. Thus, the Torah's account of the revelation at Sinai very clearly rules out the possibility of fraud. Now, to be more clear, we're not trying to say that this is a empirically proven or scientifically proven the way that we think of it today. But what we are trying to say is, we call this normally permission to believe. Why do we call it that? Because the fact of the matter is, if you analyze it and you think to yourself, is there any way that this could have happened, right? That this could have been made up at a later point in time that there was a divine revelation. And in this divine revelation, it was to all of our grandparents. And it told all of our grandparents that they should tell over to their children, but yet we had never heard about it previously. In other words, you have one of two options. Either this actually happened and it was being related over to the children and grandchildren of each generation, or it never happened. Now, if it never happened, at what point in time was it made up, right? So if you made it up in one generation and you said, okay, everyone, we're going to trick everyone and we are going to put up a, a hologram and we are going to make believe that there is someone talking, that there's a voice of God, but really it's, it's all, you know, it's, it's magic. It's, you know, slate of hand and it's not really God speaking. That would be one option. Okay. The other option would be that it was made up after the fact. In other words, what they did is they didn't claim that right now you were seeing this divine revelation. But many generations later, they claimed to the people that there was a divine revelation previously. Now, today with special effects, we can actually think to ourselves, perhaps you can actually make everyone think that there was a divine revelation. I don't think that they really had that ability in those days to do this. And I think the proof is that no one has ever attempted this mass fraud before or since. No one has ever attempted to say, God revealed himself to everyone, right? And this was such an easy fixed to put on people, why doesn't anybody else ever say this? Why doesn't any other religion begin with a divine revelation on a mass scale? Why does every other religion begin with a divine revelation to an individual? Well, the answer is because it's far more difficult, right? Almost to the point of being impossible. Now, the second way perhaps makes a little more sense that perhaps it was made up at a later point in time. And what was made up is, oh, you should know, <laughs> this has been said in the past and it was said over to your grandparents and your grandparents forgot about it. And then they, I found out about this and I'm coming to tell everyone that this is what happened. In theory, one could try to pull that off, but I think we all would ask ourselves, the Torah itself says that you should relate this to your children, to your grandchildren. That first generation to whom this incredible charlatan walks up and says, listen guys, I got the goods. Okay, here's the goods. The goods is that everyone was there and all of your grandparents were there, and all of your great-grandparents were there, and there was hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people standing there, and God revealed the Torah to them. I think we all would ask ourselves, wait, how come you know that and none of us know that? Why didn't our grandparents ever tell us that, right? 
So it's not like a falsifiable, it's not like scientific evidence, but it's permission to believe. It's something that's highly unlikely to have been falsified. The details recounted by the Torah further underline this point. At the time of the revelation, not only the people were forbidden to be on the mountain, whence came the divine voice, but so was Moshe himself. Right? The Torah itself tells us that Moshe was not permitted to be on the mountain, which means Moshe was standing with the people when God was speaking. Right? It, the best ventriloquist wouldn't have been able to pull it off. Right? That there's this thunderous voice coming from very far away. It, it wouldn't have happened. Right? In any case, Moshe was a human being of normal background, humble and hard of speech. In no way could he be seen as a demagogue scheming to mislead a people and as the originator of the law. I want to emphasize this point for a moment. I just read something this past Torah portion. I was reading a book called the Dresho Taram, the Sermons of the Rabbeinu Nissim, who was a Spanish uh, genius and, and Torah scholar in the 1300s. And he says like this, he says, there is actually a law in the Torah, in the oral Torah, that to be a prophet who's leading the Jewish people, you have to be wealthy, you have to be tall, you have to be good looking. There's so many different aspects that you have to have. Now, why do you have to have all of these things? Because you have to be someone who the people will, will accept as someone that they should respect and honor. And the question is, why does the Torah describe for us that Moshe is a COVID pet? He stutters, he stammers, right? It's not exactly the kind of person you would expect the person to convey to us the message, the eternal message of God, would be someone who has difficulty speaking straight, right? Considering that we know that generally speaking, they should be someone who we all can look up to. Most of us don't necessarily look up to that kind of individual. So what the Rat says is Moshe himself was puzzled about this. And he says to God, God, you're asking me to be the one to speak? I am an Aralsif Asayim. I'm someone who doesn't have an easy way of talking. So the answer is like this. The answer is it was critical that the prophet who establishes once and for all the idea that God speaks to people through prophets had to be someone who there would be no doubt at all that there is no trickery going on around here. This is not an incredibly charismatic individual. This is not a smooth orator who could cast a spell on us. Not at all. To the contrary, Moshe was someone who had difficulty speaking clearly. And yet still every person there was convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that what they were witnessing was a true revelation of God. And that is an incredibly powerful thing to be able to say, why are we convinced that Judaism is the true religion and not all the other religions that are also convinced that they are the religion? The answer, according to Rav Hirsch, is this is the answer right here. Why has no other religion tried to pull off this, this incredible claim, right? And the answer is because it wouldn't be possible to pull it off unless it's actually true. So as far as Hirsch is concerned, he's not looking to prove anything logically. Not necessary. All we need is the empirical evidence of the fact that it's impossible to have made up this tradition, and it's also impossible to have tricked everyone in the very first place. 